0: Welcome to the Global Payroll Association's podcast in partnership with ADP, Women in Payroll. My name is Melanie Pitsey and I'm the CEO of the Global Payroll Association. I'm so excited to run this series of podcasts to give me the opportunity to introduce to you some of the inspirational female leaders that I've met over the last 20 years within the payroll community. My co-host today is Graham Wiley, who is the Vice President Marketing International of ADP. During our podcast, we will be discussing the highs and lows of individuals' careers and find out how they have got to where they are today. So, as I say, let's get on with the show. Hi, Graham. How are you today?
1: Hi, Mel. I'm, I'm good. It's the end of March, so I'm on lockdown as are you and as is our guest today.
0: Yeah, I feel like I might be going a bit stir crazy. Hopefully it's not going to be too long. Um but what a, a great way to spend our our day today. Um we're speaking to Michelle Honemichael. Um so hi Michelle. Hi everyone.
1: Hey Michelle, welcome to the podcast.
2: Yeah, it's great to be here today.
0: So whereabouts are you based today? What what are you uh, where are you in the, in the world of or well USA? Whereabouts in the USA are you based?
2: So um, I'm actually, I live in Rochester, Michigan, which is north of about 25 miles north of Detroit. So we're kind of in the Detroit metro area. I kind of grew up half between Chicago and Detroit area, pretty much all my life, back and forth, back and forth. But now at this moment, um, I'm just north of Detroit and looking out my window we're, um I'm in the woods. So you don't have to go very far to get rural in Michigan when you, got, when you drive north.
0: Sounds fantastic. So I've heard of your name for many years, I reckon at least 15 years plus. And um, I know uh, in previous years we've interviewed you and I feel like I know you, but I know there's a lot more uh, to find out about you. So, um, Michelle,
2: do you want to just give us an idea of your background and where you started? Sure, absolutely. So um, I'm actually a car girl. So I started... And so one of my jobs is actually Michigan. So went to Michigan State. Started out my career at Ford Motor Company as an international auditor. And I'll be honest, nobody actually starts out and decides I'm going to be in payroll, right? So I didn't start out that way either. I start. I just wanted to do something international. So I started at Ford. I traveled all over for them, Latin America and Europe, um, auditing different locations. And then I got moved over into their international service center, which manages. And they were just building that out in the mid 90s. And um, they asked me to come in and help build out the different offices and with people and also technology. So I did that and I learned a lot about the expatriate world. And we used to run around like crazy every month trying to get payroll out and do expense reports and relocate people. And I thought, wow, you know what? If Ford is considered best in class, there's a real opportunity here to, you know, there's a business opportunity here. And so I went back to graduate school at IU, Indiana University. Um, And at the time, I actually studied the industry. And I said, wow, you know what? Ford Motor Company at the time really was world class, and everybody else is struggling more. But how do you manage expats? So in 99, I graduated, and I went out and started an ASP technology company, application service provider. We call it cloud today. But that was back in the days of client server. So you can imagine um, how hard it was to go out and sell something against the old client server mentality and people kept telling me, well, I'm not going to put any, you know, sensitive information on the internet. And this is like 2001, right? And so I'm thinking, yeah, you're you're going to do that. Um, I went to a major US retailer and they told me that they would never put any uh, client information or employee information on the internet. This is like 2002. And today I can tell you they're selling tons of stuff on the internet, just like everybody else. So it was an interesting time. And um, so I was able to start an expatriate technology company called GPS Link, uh, sold it to some major corporations, secured some strategic partner financing, and then we had 9-11, right? So, you know, U.S. crisis, but somewhat global crisis. And since I got paid per expat, because I was on that new Price per head concept in the early 2000s, I mean, we were way ahead of our time, you know, cloud-based, price per employee. Well, if you bring back all your expats, it's not good for the business model. <laughs> so the best thing that actually happened to me is me tearing that company apart. we didn't feel like it at the time because I was in you know, late 20s, early 30s, and we pulled that company apart between my two investors. But one of the things that happened at that time is people kept asking me when I'd go and say, hey, I can do all this stuff for your expats. They said, that's great, but can you pay my two locals in France? And I thought, okay, I do expatriate payroll and things like that. You know, How hard could it possibly be to pay two locals in France? And we all know how hard that is, right? <laughs> Being naive is a great thing when you start a company uh, because if I would have known how hard that actually was, I probably wouldn't have done it. But I said, all right, we're gonna do this. So. I started Solergo in really uh, December, November, December of 2003, in my basement on $10,000. And the best thing is when you're going to start a company, you might as well move house and have a baby at the same time. So I always know how old Solergo is because basically we started, I, I ran my first payroll in June of 2004. And yes, I ran it. And I had a baby in July of 2004. So I look at my son who's now um, going to be 16 this summer, and I know exactly how many years I've been in this industry. So we just grew from there. I mean, we went from my basement to co-op offices to our own offices in 06. Um, by, you know, the end of 07, we were running probably 60 to 80 countries. By the end of, you know, 010, we were in 140 countries. We were very fortunate to have some client, early on clients who then, bought a whole bunch of things. So we did a lot of MA transactions early in Solergo's career. And we just continued growing up to 11 million. And that's when we brought in professional capital. And that was in 2011. So we grew that company. It was super exciting. I'm sure you're going to ask me probably more questions about that as we go along. And in 2018, um, our wonderful private equity company that we have that had a fantastic relationship said, it's time for you to graduate. So <laughs> you need to either go on and go to a bigger private equity company or find a nice partner to work with you guys. And in uh, August 1st um, in 2018, you're able to partner with ADP, which is very exciting, and um, kind of merge those two companies together around that uh, Silergo streamline um, portion of the business. So
0: obviously we'll, we'll, we'll ask more questions about uh, Solergo, but where you are now, obviously you're um, working with ADP. How, how does that feel? Because that's obviously quite a big difference from, you know, having your baby, isn't it? You know, starting this company up and then working with this bigger multimillion dollar organisation. Is there, is there a big difference from the Salergo now to the ADP?
2: Well, it's interesting being executive chairman <laughs> going down and being, you know, running a product inside of a large, a large company. So, um, oh, of course, it's different, right? I mean, you know, when you're in uh, a small company, I mean, we weren't that small, but we were, you know, small compared by any means to, to ADP. You, you've got to just hustle all the time, right? So it's, you know, make it work, make it work, make it work all the time. Um, and sometimes there's some praying that happens too. I, I will say. But the the awesome thing about being part of a larger organization like ADP, and I used to laugh about this, but it makes me feel so much better, is that when ADP came on that first day, you know, August first, is all of a sudden I inherited sixty salespeople, and you know we inherited this huge development organization and. They have more people in compliance than we had in our company, right? So, all of a sudden, all those things I worry about and still worry about and still think about, like GDPR and, and OK, Social and what's going on in Russia and all those things, there's so much more help out there than we would have had being our own entity. So, um, all of that is great and, and that's very exciting. I think what's hard for me personally is I'm used to running a business, even though you know, um, around 2013, 2014, we brought in a CEO so I could move over and just run the vision and the tech and the, um, you know, the product and where it's going. I was so, I knew everything that was going on at Salergo, right? So, you know, exactly what marketing doing. You know, I drove pricing, I drove product that, which drove operations, you know, operations supported sales, you know, all of those things kind of came together. And when you come into a bigger corporation, obviously, you only see a portion of that now, right? You don't see the whole big picture anymore because the picture is so large. So I think that for me personally is a little is a little difficult. Um, but of course, the exciting part is saying, hey, all these cool technologies, you know, where do we need to go next? And then I've got this big development team that's behind it that can actually execute that. So that part of it is very exciting.
0: So it's almost like taking the control away, but then having all these amazing new things that you can play with because you've got more people to do stuff to a certain extent yeah new toys new toys
2: <laughs> <laughs> new toys more toys um, but of course the you know you, that comes with getting new toys there's there's more layers of having to go through to get said new toys but um you know there is exciting i mean i'll be honest you know it's lergo, you know we couldn't have talked about using our you know using RPA and using our robots to talk to your robots that just wouldn't have been in our business plan for years because that's an expensive endeavor it's a really exciting endeavor but it's something we never would have been able to do but we can do it here at ADP because they're already working on different components of that so i think a lot of my job today is saying what you know what is the vision where where do we need to go right and then what are the tools and technologies that we have today to get to that place which is really you know, which is really exciting.
1: And I think, Michelle, before we come to kind of what the future looks like and what it holds, you, you touched on a couple of really interesting things there that I just want to go back on and, and and pick up. And and where did this passion for international come from? It sounded like it was really clear really early on, right from the days in, in Ford. What made yeah. you so curious about international?
2: You know, um, I, have, I have wanderlust, right? So I started out very young. My parents didn't travel internationally. They, we didn't travel a lot. I mean, my dad traveled a lot inside the United States, um, with his job. But, uh, when I was in high school, I was like in Spanish club. And then we went to Spain and, you know, m- my mom hadn't even been out of the United States and I went with like a, a group of kids. Right. And I thought, I really like this. I love, you know, I love learning new things. Right. And I love being able to go to a new place and meet new people and see things from a different perspective and so it's kind of one of my Joneses you know it's something that excites me and interests me Um, and it almost makes me a little sad in a way because back in the old days you know in the 80s and 90s you would go other places in the world right and you'd see very different things and today, sometimes you go to other places in the world. I went to Singapore, and there's a Garrett's popcorn downtown, which is a Chicago thing. Okay, and I'm like, really? They have a Garrett's popcorn in Singapore? Um, and so, you know, the world has gotten smaller with the internet. But I still really enjoy there's for me there is an intrinsic thrill of getting off an airplane into something completely different. And it, it, it feeds everything that I am. I'm, I'm an innovator. I love new things. I love learning. And you can learn something from everybody, no matter what, whether it's a small child or it's a person that, you know, putting my hair or doing all different kinds of things. I always think you can learn something from everybody. And so that's kind of my intrinsic nature. And international just that compounds it right? <laughs> um, so I- massively
1: how many countries have you actually now visited since you kind of got into the, the international payroll world? Sounds like oh, you're I collecting them. I have
2: no idea. Um, I have no idea. I don't even know. I haven't counted. Not that many, maybe 40. It's probably not that many. I mean, that if is, you think about it. That is quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it might be, but I think about it. And I'm like, but there's another hundred out there that I haven't seen. Right now, I'll be honest. There's some that I probably don't want to go to. I mean, there's um, right now, probably, you know, not maybe for the next six months, but I, I have some, some definite places. And what's exciting is my kids are now, I have two boys. So I have one that's 16 or going to be 16 and going to be 12. And this is the perfect time to travel. So like in the last year, they've been everywhere. I, I, I've been working so hard for so long. I said, all right, let's start cashing in miles and, and traveling. So we took them to the UK. So the first time they've been to Europe. You know, we took them down to the islands. We went to California and did all the redwoods type things. And we were trying to gear up for some big international ones this year, how things play out in the next six months. But definitely, this is the time I want them to have that same passion that I had in high school and being able to see the world through different
1: eyes. So, Mel, we should perhaps explain we're recording this at the very end of March. Um, Obviously, a number of countries in lockdown at this point in time and managing the coronavirus situation. unclear as yet uh, when michelle and others will be able to resume travel and, <laughs> and explore the world um but you, you said something interesting when we were talking about this right at the, the beginning before we started recording michelle which was how you know periods of uncertainty uh, and change have an impact and how that curiosity has led you in in new directions and you touched really early on that you you, you graduated and you immediately went into setting up your own business and then you followed that business until nine eleven. so can you talk me through what that decision-making process felt like. Did you go to uh, university after, after working to do your postgraduate and then think, right, I know I'm going to work for myself or was that just where your curiosity led you?
2: Um, so I think it's a good question. So I worked at Ford Motor Company and at the time in the early nineties, Ford was 400,000 employees. Okay. Which is incredible. And um there's so much opportunity. I'm so glad that I had that Fortune 500 experience, right? Knowing what it's like to be in an organization like that. And I was so uh, blessed, in, in a way, to, to have so many different experiences because I was an auditor. So I got to see all the different components of Ford. Um, but then I, I, I latched onto this idea, this expatriate idea, and thought, I can make a go of it. I've always been – my dad was um, sat on a couple venture capital boards um, I have entrepreneurship in my genes. I had a grand, great-grandfather who uh, was a, a waste hauler. We used to call them Teamsters, but not the way we think of Teamsters today. In Chicago, and was one of the biggest ones. It was, you know, waste removal, back with horses and carts, you know. And then I had another grandfather that uh, started the first Oldsmobile dealership in Chicago. So it's kind of in the blood, right? And I thought, I can do this. My parents thought it was crazy crazy graduating from graduate school with all this debt and saying i'm going to start a company but like, you just have to believe and there are days i would stand up and you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say i can do this and people will be at you there's no way you can have global payroll you'd have to have this and this and this i mean i was told that i don't know how many times that it was not physically possible to do expatriate payroll or global payroll using technology back in the early late 1990s and early 2000s. And I'm like, no, it can be done. I know it can be done. And it's sometimes that relentless drive that, you know, makes it happen. If you look at some of, I mean, one of some of my favorite quotes come from like Henry Ford. And, you know, he would say, well, you know, if you think you can, or you think you can't, you're right. I mean, you know, so I'm like, I think I can do this. And I had nothing to lose, right? My husband, I was newly married. My husband had a good job. He had benefits. So we were okay there. We didn't have any kids. We lived in this tiny little house. So we had three cats to feed. And I knew my parents, if horse comes to horse, would feed our cats. They might not feed us, but they would have fed the cats. So we would have been okay. And, um, you know, it was a good time to experiment. And then once you got in and you started growing, I mean, you know, at Salero, wow, we went from ten thousand to six hundred and fifty, or we went from our first year was fifty thousand to six fifty to wow, one point eight to three point five to eight point something. I mean, it just was growing so fast. I never really thought about growing a company; it just kind of happened. And you just have to have that drive and passion every day, and have those people on the front lines give them, you know, that passion every day for what they do. And if you talk to any of my you know, like Lena Sachs, or you know, any of my early people that we hired on, they would talk about that passion. People would stay till eight or ten o'clock at night if we had to get payroll out. You know, it's just how it was. So it was exciting times,
1: and so exciting times because you're you're seeing growth, you're you're winning clients, and and you're doing in the early days, you're doing pretty much everything. So whether that's <laughs> selling yeah. or building the software or building the ASP and then and then selling it and then delivering the the service off the back of it, and then you get to 9-11 and you know the world changes overnight and and i think there's a, a general sense that we're at one of those times when you know, a lot of people are speculating about how does the world change so what did you take away from that experience that you know would be useful to share with people who are listening today maybe in lockdown maybe they've been in their houses for a couple of weeks and they're they're, they're thinking about you know, okay what comes next what does this mean And and you went through that transition and came out the other side with a totally different business but, but just as energetic, just as curious. So I'd love to learn more about that.
2: You know, the interesting thing, and this is, you know, when you go into lockdown or, or business stops, what happens is ingenuity starts, right? So people have to get creative. It might be getting creative on working three jobs to, to make rent. Um, it might be creative to say, hey, I got nothing to lose. I mean, if you end up going on unemployment, well, that buys you time to start a business if you think about it, right? Because you're, you've got time now in your hands. You're looking for a job, but also you can't look for a job eight, 10 hours a day, right? There's only so many resumes, so many things you can do, especially when there's a downturn. like that. But it gives you an opportunity to step back and say, but what could I do? Can I do gig work? Can I, do, can I start a company? Well, what's the worst thing that can happen, right? If I start and it doesn't work, I'm, I'm, I'm at where I am now. Right, <laughs> you know, I'm still on point. I'm still, um, you know, I'm still trying to find something that's going to work. So actually, if you kind of look at cycles, a lot of new entrepreneurial companies actually do start during downturns when people have time on their hands. So especially now, when you're looking at people being locked in their homes and they're trying to keep their kids engaged, I guarantee you, there's going to be um, a spot or a big. Uh, startups around how do you keep kids engaged, whether that's, you know, new types of videos, training, any of those kinds of things, that's going to happen. It's going to happen probably in nine to 12 months, because all these parents are home with these kids 20, 24-7 now. So it, it, it changes, you're, you're looking at different things, maybe things that you haven't done, in, you know, in the past, um, and, and you're going to have time on your hands. So it's how you use that time. I had an entrepreneurial professor tell me one time that TV was a waste of time. He said, you know, you watch a show and, you know, whether you like it or you don't like it, you could have used that hour to, you know, start a new idea or grow something. I I, I don't know if I agree with that 100%. I think sometimes you got to relax okay, and chill a little bit. But he is right to some extent. It's how you use your time and someone who has a high energy component like me will use every minute of every day crazy but um, that's how I'm built so I think you're going to see a lot of exciting stuff come out in 12 months from now Um, new in you know there's going to be ingenuity at work and innovation at work that's going to come out
1: and how important was it that that you came to the global payroll space having never really run payroll you've done stuff around payroll you've been the auditor you had a you had a, a, an expatriate lens that you were looking through. But, you know, I think you've said in the past that, that when it started, you, you didn't know how to run payroll. You, you didn't know how hard it was going to be.
2: <laughs> I still do know. Um, so the funny thing is, you're absolutely right. I couldn't tell you how my paycheck was calculated. Um, I did learn that periodically. I'm still not exactly sure how it would calculate. <laughs> so I hate to say that, but it's true it, it changes all the time. Um, I think that's a great way because we came to payroll, what we were trying to solve, so Solergo was not trying to solve calculating payroll. That wasn't the problem we were solving. The problem we were solving was companies were, wanted to outsource that function. They didn't know how to do it themselves or they were afraid, especially in those early years, they were afraid of doing it themselves. Okay. And there was no one there who would say, I'll do it for you in a way that you can understand it. That was the trick, right? You could go out and find a a little company in, you know, France or Germany or Japan to do payroll for you, but you would have as a company, let's say you had 50 people in each one of those, you really have no idea exactly how those, you know, what the rules were in Japan or, you know, why is there no federal tax on a, a French payslip, which one is federal tax? I used to get asked that all the time because there isn't one, right? So people would just, just, they just wanted someone else to take care of it, just take care of it. That was, the solu- that was the problem we were solving. Now, part of that, part of the mechanics of that is actually doing the calculation and making sure the filing was done and making sure the employees are being paid. But the actual calculation was something that we, we didn't ever really want to do because we weren't the experts in that piece. And that wasn't the problem we were actually solving. So I love that we came from that way because I am hugely client centric. And, um, you know, with the clients, I'd always think about how do I make it easier for them, How do I get them to understand this piece of legislation? How do I talk to a person based in the U.S. about a French pay slip and it's two pages long, right? And why it's two pages long, but make it very simple for them to understand and say, hey, all these things, these are benefits. These are like our Medicare and social security. They're just broken out in, you know, all these different components. And they go, oh, I get it. So the whole company, Solergo, was started on simplifying the process of managing payroll, not actually calculating payroll. So it's kind of like a car, Right. The goal is getting you from one point, point A to point B, right? And all the complexity is under the hood of the car, but you don't need to know that. You just need to get in, press the button or turn the key, and you'll get from point A to point B. Ford Motor Company made it simple, if you think about it, right? Because that car is pretty complex. And that's what we need. That's what we were trying to accomplish with payroll.
1: So the inspiration you come from Ford, there's inspiration there in terms of the process change and the simplicity of the car. But it's they're two very separate things, to be inspired and to have an idea and to actually execute it. And curiosity and energy, that's all part of the process. But how do you go out and find partners in countries where your clients have have employees but that they themselves don't understand? How did you even begin that process?
2: So what we did is when we started out, we said, okay, um, we had a couple partners that we knew or were in networks we knew, whether it was like um, a BDO or a Grant Thornton or something to that extent. So we started with, you know, someone we knew, and then we worked with them. We said, hey, do you know somebody next door, right? And we would start stretching out into different countries that way, and then we would start our vetting process. So and you know, in the beginning, it was real simple. It was just kind of round financials and. You know, what services do you offer? Can you meet our timelines? You know, because back in 2004, 2005, 2006, that was pretty simple in that way. And so we really leveraged a lot of those, like accounting networks to get us started. But then we learned, right? And so it is a process of learning and a process of working with those partners and getting strong, a lot of conversations, a lot of getting them into our process and how our process worked. We were incredibly fortunate that, you know, over all those years of, of bringing on partners, there were some partners that we phased out. Some would say, you know what, I'm getting out of the payroll part of this business. I'm an accountant. I'm going to concentrate on accounting. But we only really literally had a handful that we had to actually switch. So I think we were very fortunate in that respect because we got smarter. We got better. Um we we hunkered down with a couple of our partners and got like, you know, our big countries, we'd get two. And we always made sure we had redundancy, only because in case something happened, we had, you know, we were dealing with things like typhoons and we had a country that went out, power went out in the entire country in Africa think about getting payroll out when there's no power, right? (laughs) Or I had, you know, situations where um, clients that were on oil rigs and the oil rig went silent. So because there were actually pirates on the oil rig. It's a very long story. It's fun. But, you know, you have all these kinds of complexities. But boy, you know, it makes payroll kind of fun, right? Because there's some interesting things that happen around the world. And you read the front of the Wall Street Journal, and i go down through the, you know, the international column, and I'm like, <gasps> better be careful of that one. Ooh, we're gonna have an Arab Spring. Okay, you know, let's make sure that we're ready for all these things that that can possibly happen.
1: And um, Mel, we talk a couple of times on these podcasts, just about how people fall into payroll, and yet what an incredibly diverse and interesting career it can be. And I, I've yet to see the advert that says, you know, travel the world and 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 experience, you know, payroll uh, across. But th- I mean, that's the reality of, of of how payroll underpins so much of day to day business operations right across the world. So, Michelle, I think uh, Saligo so up and running, and you you growing the business, and the business is doing well. And then, obviously, we're living in uncertain and challenging times. So, Saligo so comes out of uh, September the 11th, um, and then obviously. Two thousand and eight financial crisis. Fast-growing, medium-sized business. By this point, how do you weather that storm? What were the lessons that you took away from that experience?
2: (laughs) So, um, the wonderful thing is, we had a big backlog. So, um, when you have a backlog of business and you go into a crisis situation, as long as the clients don't pull out of that backlog, you're you're in a good place. And so, we were incredibly fortunate that we had, um, we had a great backlog. So two things. Number one, payroll happens. Like you can't just, payroll's not arbitrary, right? You still have to run your payroll. So our current business was still good. It wasn't like people were going to, you know, stop buying, you know, clipboards, right? You, you had to run your payroll. Now the, the insidiousness of this though is that as people lay people off and if you get paid per person, overall your revenue is going to go down, right? Because of that. The interesting thing is, we grew in eight, nine, and 10, and we grew a lot. And the reason why is we had backlog and we were less expensive, oftentimes, than what the incumbent was charging, especially on the expatriate side. We were doing a lot of expatriate payrolls at the time. So people actually put the gas down on trying to get these payrolls in because it was actually going to save them money. So, interesting, kind of strange world that that happened. On the flip side, I learned all about contracting. So, you know, we would go along and we would contract with our, our clients. And honestly, most of our clients at that time, back in those days, would pay us current, right? Would pay us the month that we had payroll. We had a couple clients that had longer terms, 30, 60. We even had one at 90 days, but they were paying us current at the time. Okay. So, um, we didn't really think much of that. But we had one of our clients say, we're going to enforce our contract as is. And um, it's a 90 day term. And they actually didn't pay for 120 days. And they were a multi-million-dollar client. And when you're only so big, right, um, that took up your bank line and everything else. So that became very stressful. <laughs> so even though we had all this new business coming in, Um, We had some hard lessons to learn about contracting that happened many, many years ago, um, and that was enforcement of those contracts. So we actually ended up at Salergo putting all of our employees on furlough for like two days a month. So they got two days off, but we, you know, obviously furlough means you don't get paid for two days. And we did it for, I think, only three or four months. So we did it very short. We didn't have to lay one person off everybody in the company came together to make it happen and get those payrolls out. We literally would go around and pick up the cushions on the couch to look for pennies. You've got so much energy. I mean, obviously I've heard you speak before.
0: We've got so much energy and you're, you're obviously very intelligent and a go getter. Um, can I, are you, would you say that you're a, a people person? 100% a people person because it feels like you get to know people get
2: to know what they want and that sort of drives you as well you know actually it's an incredibly good question um because I do my biggest like when people ask me like what's the thing you're most proud of at at Solergo? and I love how many people started their careers at Salergo and they grew up at Soler, either They grew up with us or they started their career with us and then went on into the industry or on into other industries and became successful. And that's because we spend a lot of time and energy on our people, right? And, and I always believe that if the people on the front line have what they need to execute, then we're going to do well. And so our company was run like an upside down pyramid. So management was at the bottom of the pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid is the front line, is our client service associates. Because as they would encounter issues or problems or needed something, they should filter it, in this case, down to their manager. And then their manager should filter it down to senior management whose job it was to make sure those people had what they needed to be effective at their jobs. And um, if you're in a service organization, that is an amazing way to run a business because you're getting frontline feedback all the time, right? And, but you got to live it every single day, and it is a lot about people. Now, I will also tell you that I am super happy being by myself with a book and a glass of wine, too. So I'm okay not having people every minute of every day, right? Um, so I'm kind of in a teeter-totter. When I'm in with people, on the phone with people, in my office, you know, with everyone there, I'm absolutely a people person. But I also get a lot of my strength internally from my myself and you know being able to say hey I need my alone time which is really hard right now because most of my alone time was on the plane (laughs) and I don't have any plane time anymore just sit and think or that's where I used to do a lot of my thinking was either driving back and forth to the office or um you know sitting on the plane for two or three hours and that's where I get some of my best ideas and kind of work out problems you know having that time to myself
0: so, how, how are you going to replace that
2: time? Have you, have you put something in place already? How do I replace that time? Um, I don't right now. I have people in my house 24 7. It's hard. <laughs> um, so, that's actually probably out of this whole thing, believe it or not, is a little bit of a stressor for me. Is all of a sudden, I have people all the way around. You know, I used to have kids at school or I'd be traveling somewhere. Um, so, I probably have not made that a priority myself right now is my own time away from all of that because you can't really get away from all that right now uh, with COVID. i do love my family okay and i do love my pets and i love all of that but i do love having you know an hour or two of my own time
1: um so i mean you mentioned the pets we we can't have an interview with michelle without talking about winston (laughs) the pig
2: (laughs) yeah so um when we moved back from Chicago to Detroit, one of the things that we said is in the Chicago land area, I live very close to your neighbors, right? So we only had three cats at the time. That was our pet um, equilibrium is three, not two cats, not four cats. Three is perfect. So we moved to Michigan. We do have like three or four acres, and it's all woods. I can see a neighbor out there, but it's they're not nearby. And we are allowed to have a pig, and my son has always wanted a pig. So we have Winston the pig. He's black and white he's technically a micro pig, which means they're under 300 pounds. So everybody understands a micro pig is not small. They're, um, he's about, uh, 15 inches tall. He's about, uh, maybe two and a half feet long and he's probably 15 inches wide. Okay. So he's short and stocky. He's hysterically one of the most fun pets we've ever had. Just so everybody knows they're hyperallergenic. I mean, not quite, but they have no smell at all. they They've got funny hair and um, he's just a character. He likes to open and close your, you know, your um, cabinets. He, um, he's very vocal. He talks a lot and he sleeps on my son's bed every night under the covers, all the way under the covers, down by his feet. And uh, it's just been super fun. Absolutely super fun. We also got a dog. So we do have a dog and the dog and pig kind of get along sometimes, sometimes don't. She can run circles around him. Um, but he's probably the smarter of the two because when he wants, they fight over a bed, you know, a dog bed. And when he wants the dog bed and the dog's sitting on the bed, he goes and stands by the door to go outside. So I open the door to let him out. He stands there, the dog jumps over him to go outside, and Winston goes back and lays in the bed. Smart <laughs> piggy. <laughs> so we have a dog named Maggie, and then we have two horses now too. So we have Captain and Amigo, um, both paint um, American quarter Horse. Colored horses, so they're called paints. And hopefully later this summer we'll actually get to show. Them. So that's my uh, other passion from when I grew up, and I so, used to show quarter horses as a kid.
1: So Mel, maybe we can get a picture of Winston to put in the uh, in the show notes. Def-
2: def- I'll send you some pictures. <laughs> Definitely.
1: <laughs> back to, go back to payroll, then Michelle. So through the financial crisis, so two really strong formative experiences. But you're working for yourself. You're running your own business. Where do you get inspiration and how do you learn how to do that? You've had to furlough staff. You've had to bring them with you on the journey. Um, you only worked for a few years forward and then postgraduate. So who did you, did you have mentors? Did you have role models? How did you feed your curiosity about business to learn how to do some of this stuff?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. So a couple of things. One, I had a partner. So in, in the early days of Solergo, it was two of us that actually started, he was a, Um, His name is Port Brown. He was part of my graduating class at IU. So the good thing is we had the two of us, right, especially up through uh, 2011. And so he was a big reader too. Um, And a lot of it, we didn't have a ton of mentors because we were growing so fast. Um, You just kind of had to kind of trial and error. The great thing was is my a lot of times I would call and talk to my dad and he was a CFO. My dad um, was the CFO for Henry Ford health systems, which was the second largest nonprofit health systems in the United States. And he did a lot of deals, um, buying into a lot of MNA in his time period as CFO and bond deals and things like that. So I would call and he also sat on a couple of BC boards. So he knew that whole world, right? And how you do those things. Um, so I used him as a sounding board a lot. A lot of my calls home would be like, oh my gosh, what's going on? What do I need to do? Or this is what this investor is asking. How do I handle this? Um, I think we were very fortunate to have some good people help us along as, as we went along. Not to say that we didn't have our challenges with some earlier investors and things like that, but we were definitely able to get through that. But I, you know, I don't have one. I think the best thing, is we used to go to the Inc. 500 conferences, which were great. I mean, they or gave you a lot of good ideas. You just learn from other entrepreneurs and what they were doing. But a lot of times we were so heads down in the business just getting through to tomorrow. You know, how do we, you know, we just get creative. The furlough concept actually came from my friend who worked for the state of Michigan and the state of Michigan went on furlough. So I was like, Oh, that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> so sometimes it's just like what your friends, what are happening to your friends and family and stuff like that. I'm like, Oh, we can apply that. Yeah. Or I would use some other technology. Like I, I have my favorite apps and I look at them all the time because I'm like, this is a great idea. We should do this for payroll. Totally unrelated. It could be for a car or for like Delta airlines has a fantastic app. I look at theirs. I'm like, we should do these same concepts for payroll. So I get a lot of my inspiration through other products and other companies and what they're doing has absolutely nothing to do with payroll. That's what makes it, you know, innovative.
1: And that's, that's long been a challenge for this industry because every month is focused on getting payroll out the door every month, the data changes. So people get very focused on the task at hand. So how is you take, one step back from that and you look at a payroll and not to diminish the task of delivering core payroll, but what additional value do you see payroll currently offering the business in which it operates and and, and how can payroll professionals really build on that to increase the, if you like, the strategic role of payroll in their organization?
2: You know, it's interesting. So you as I said, I was an auditor um, at heart, right? So I love numbers. I'm going to tell you that. I love, because numbers, and this is, again, my dad was a CFO and I have a finance degree. So numbers are great. And you know where you get a lot of numbers? You get numbers and payroll. Payroll tells you what just happened last month, right? If you could take all those numbers and say, how much, how many commissions did we pay globally? And where did we actually pay those commissions? That's going to tell you your sales numbers. I mean, your honest sales numbers, the ones that, you know, apply because the product went out the door, got implemented, right? Because that's when your salespeople get paid commissions. There's so much data in payroll where you can analyze it for your, you know, for business purposes that I think, you know, you you said it rightly, people just don't have time to look at it. And if that data then can be fed through back to corporate and you can see things like, why don't we do a whole bunch of off cycles in Spain that month? Is it because we hired? Is it because we fired? You you see all these patterns that emerge and what you're seeing now kind of going in the future. And I think this is really key, especially for payroll professionals. We are going to get to the point where all these transactions are going to be done automatically. It's not happening today. It's just because in the payroll industry, I think has been Slow to innovate here, right? Think about banks. We do online, everybody does online banking. Who gets a check these days, especially not in Europe? You guys know it checks. We, we still have some checks in the US. Do you remember in the old days, right? You'd get paid and you'd have to take your check down to the bank and they would cash it. You had all these, you know, tellers, bank tellers. There's no bank, there's very few bank tellers these days. And there's a few, but not many because that whole industry got turned upside down on its head because of automation. Payroll's gonna go there. And it's going to go there today. They have to, if you're up in you know, the project management of putting in an HCM and tying payroll into it, looking at payroll, how you're going to regionalize it instead of just having it for country, how are you going to automate it and get robotics so that you can terminate someone and it's going to pick up the details from the time system and from the You know, um, stock system and from benefits and return back exactly what you need now or later. Later, so you can make payroll in California. Those are the kinds of things you're not going to have a team of people hand calculating or pulling it by hand for all those things. So, if you're a payroll professional today, I think what's really critical is understanding tech and where it's going and understanding the big picture instead of just being down into my job is to reconcile payroll A with payroll B. That's great. But if you have errors, how are you fixing those errors? Are we automating to fix those errors? Is it coming upstream from HCN? because that's where it's all going to tie together? And if you want to be in this industry, the winners are in this industry are the ones that have the background. You need to understand the details, get to the analytic component, understand the big picture to get your organization to a point where it's using analytics off the payroll, and payroll becomes kind of a non-event in the background, like you know. When you pay your bills online, all those vendors get paid, right? But it's in the background, right? You just say, yep, go, and then all those things happen. That didn't happen 30 years ago, right? We need payrolls going to go there.
1: And so now as you look at your new role, um, Slego became part of the ADP family, and uh, actually now a lot of your inventions and the technology is, is underpinning a lot of the ADP future strategy around global payroll and your envisaging the future of global payroll. So can you share a few thoughts about what you see as the future of global payroll and how you're working to to get there?
2: So I I really think that the goals for payroll should be for it to go behind the scenes in a way, right? I mean, we got to continually simplify this process. And the only way to do that is to make data better. So today, if you think about it, where does the payroll journey really start? it doesn't start at payroll, right? It starts when the employee is onboarding. And that data is coming directly from the employee. Like, you know, what's your bank account information? How many kids do you have? You know, all the country specifics that you need in each country. So that's pushing all the way back to your onboarding technologies. That's where payroll should start. And the thing is, is that when it starts there, it also has to validate them. So if someone puts in their bank account, if it goes through the HCM, then goes down to a payroll engine and validates overnight and comes back. Well, now you have an error. Now you've got someone on the HR side or payroll side that has to go back to the employee and say, hey, you're supposed to have six digits and you put in five. That is not an automated process. That has to go away. In other words, today, most companies are transferring data, you know, overnight. That's great. That's going to happen. and It's going to happen for a long time, Right. So some of this is high bulk, but you have to get the validation at the point of where the data is being entered. So if you can move that validation up a cycle into the HCM or into the onboarding system where the data is clear and then it goes down, whether it goes overnight or it goes via an API, either way is fine, and it comes down and it's clean, then what's going to happen is that data then can drive through the process and you have less hands touching the process, less people looking at the process because the data is clean. So today at Solergo, technically our clients have to do two steps. They have to approve the changes and approve the payroll. This is because I'm an auditor, and those are the two control points. Technically, in the future, we should get it to be zero. You should have to do zero steps. Payroll should run. I don't know if my heart can handle that, because again, the auditor is like, someone should it. But if you have the right backend components coming out of that, That should be how it is. And it should be then feeding the right pieces of information, not all the information, but the right pieces of information to a handheld, to a phone, or to a computer, whichever. However, it makes it easiest for the client to utilize that and say, hey, your payroll's ran. Here's your stats. We feel good because we ran all these components. You had 500 people last month. You have 502. We had two new hires. Everything ties out. You're all good. And by the way, for some reason, your off cycles went up you know, 10% possible. And you might as a payroll professional say, yep, yeah, we hired a whole bunch of people. So I understand that's the reason why our off cycles went up. So when I think about it, I think continuously about simplification. How do we make it simpler? How do we push it to the background? How do we make it better? How do we make the data seamless and move through and just give the person, just give our clients or the user what they need when they need it? As opposed to having them entering data or looking at reports or things like that. Interestingly enough, though, Graham, this is not an easy thing because um, we had a client, we had a client advisory board meeting, and I asked them, you know, these are all big companies. I said, "What if you could have anything in your payroll department? What would it be? What would you want? What's the next big thing?" And you know, they asked, they all said, "We want more reports." And I'm like, no, "Nope, this can't be where we're going. We need." To innovate past a report, right? We need to innovate to give you only what you need when you need it. So I'll give you my other favorite quote by Henry Ford. He said, if I would have asked my customers what they wanted, they would have told me a faster course. You never would have think about a lot. How do I jump to the next thing? What's the next? What's the next automobile? What's the next iPhone, right? What's the next internet? What's the next big step past you know just getting the data to the client when they need it? That's important, right? but how do we get to the Delta app where you go on and Delta tells you how long it's going to take you to walk from where you are now to your next, to your gate. That's brilliant. Mm. Like I use that all the time. Totally brilliant. How do we do that in payroll? That's what I obsess about all the time.
1: So, uh, so Michelle, you've you mentioned a couple of things through this conversation about what the next generation of, of payroll will need in order to be successful in that future world that you were describing. And, and one of them was obviously, uh, data literacy and the ability to think about the data. Um, I think you've described your own curiosity, and I can see how that drives the industry forward. What other tips would you offer to people who are maybe just starting out in their their career in payroll or in global payroll?
2: Yeah, it's so a good, good question. Um, I think one is to be curious, right, to, to understand the big picture. A lot of times when I talk to payroll people, they talk very specifically about the problem at hand, What's going on? And I get that, right? Because we need to get payroll out every day. And this is what I'm, I'm thinking you know, thinking about today. But I, I challenge the the group to say, think about the bigger picture. Okay, we've got HCM in, we've got onboarding. Some countries are on, some countries are not. How does it feed through? How do we improve that process for our organization? So I think it's really important to understand the big picture. I think it's important to be tech savvy. I think it's important. I think my biggest... Uh, lesson I've learned throughout my years is on uh, listening, active listening. Very few people do this well. I think it's one of the things I do really, really well. And listening means you listen to your peers, you listen to your managers, you listen to your client, whether that's an employee, if you're in a payroll department, or it's a client, if you're on a provider side, and listen through what they're saying to figure out what the problem is, right? What were they talking about? Because what's interesting is you'll find out the employees are calling you always about benefits, and they're calling you always kind of about benefits. They're not quite the same question, but as you distill it down, you'll be able to hear, you'll be able to think about wow, they're all having a problem understanding their pay slip. It's really not about benefits. It's really about our pay slips not clear? So if you actively listen in your in your career, I think that it'll help you sift through the noise and figure out really what are the strategic components that need to be looked at to move yourself forward. I think that's a really, a really key point.
1: Thank you. Um, and so, one last question: um, Looking back on on your career, what would you what would you change if you had the chance, or what would you tell your younger self if you could?
2: You know, Graham. Interestingly enough, I, I kind of hate that question because it's you, you know. It's hard to think back on, on what you've done and, and what you would have changed because obviously there were always hard times that you wished you didn't go through. But at the same time, I'm glad that I did because generally when times are hard, that's when you learn the most and you actually dig down for, for strength. You didn't know that you actually had. Um, I will tell you probably there were moments when I closed my door and I thought, oh my gosh, how am I going to make my own payroll? <laughs> <Right? laughs> there were tears, there was frustration and all kinds of things, but it makes you a stronger person. I think that you know when you look at people asking about um, what would you have changed. I think the one thing I would say, and that's okay. Uh, The organization sometimes outgrew people or people needed to be switched into different jobs where they might be better. Um, But I wish that, you know, I would have done some of those things faster. You should look at every employee that you have and look at the value they bring. And then when you say, hey, when there's a good match, then that's great. If there's not a good match, and those things will change over time, especially if a company is evolving, then you have to move that person to the right position, or sometimes you have to move them on to a position in another company. Because if you think about it, you need to have all the right people on the bus. It's moving that bus forward. And when you don't, it becomes discord, because everybody in the company knows that that's not a good fit. I wish I probably would have made some of those decisions faster. I think that's just a maturity thing. As a, as a manager too, you learn that you, you can't fix every situation. And these people oftentimes come back and talk to me and they're happier. They go on to a, a bigger, better role in another organization and we've given them the tools to be able to do that. So I think that's probably one thing I might've told my younger self, don't stress so much about it, help them move on with their career and everybody's better for it.
1: Mm, very sage if, advice.
2: You're one of
0: the very few female leaders within payroll or business leaders within payroll has there been any challenges from that you felt from a being of a female within quite a male dominated industry and is there any sort of advice that you would give other female leaders or entrepreneurs within the payroll industry
2: you know what's interesting is okay my father was a formidable man so if you think about it he um was a football player a linebacker in high school so you can imagine a big guy and he was Bald and he was loud and he was a big teddy bear, but he was tough and he loved promoting women in the organi- in his organization. Okay, so that was a big thing for him. Um, when you grow up with that, you have a thicker skin in a way, right? So I never really re- reacted or had any concern when, oftentimes, especially in the PE world, there'd be three women in the room and it's very male dominated. I never really thought about it. I actually got more issue with my age because I was young. Not a young female, just young. So nowadays, everybody is, oh, they're cool because it's young entrepreneurs. In the 90s and early 00s, it was not cool to be young and be running a company, okay? That was not cool. And so I used to get more sidelong looks or patting on the head because of my age as opposed to being a woman. I think for, if I advise for women, because I see some women struggle in their careers and maybe struggle with an old male audience You have to be heard and you have to be smart about what you say in the sense that you come prepared to your meeting. And this would be true whether you were a man or a woman, right? Come prepared to the meeting. Come prepared with what you want to say. Be okay and be assertive. If you have someone talking over you, frankly, another woman or a man, be assertive and say, hey, I'm not done. Here are my points or I believe or I think this. And and make sure that you have good backup. I see a lot of women in, in rooms back off, like they're like, "Ooh, I'm not going to say anything. I'm nervous about this," or, you know there's too many people. There's too many senior people in the room or something. If you are passionate about what you do, if you have a good background and you know what you're talking about, absolutely, absolutely, say something. I thought one of the most interesting things I went to an International Women's Forum conference in Toronto. And they had a woman get up and talk about women in the media being quoted. This is so interesting. Um, I learned a lot from this. She said, you know, women are not quoted or quoted like, I can't remember the statistic. It was like 25% compared to men, right? And it can be on any topic. It doesn't matter what the topic is. And you know why that is? It's not because the journalists don't have, you know, 50% women, 50% men in an environmental you know, and they only call on the men. That's not what happens. They call the woman first. And you know what the woman says? Oh, I'm not an expert on that topic. Or um, I don't have time to talk about it. Or I don't want to talk about it because I don't want people to ridicule me. So you know what they do? They call the guy next door who's not the expert, right? Who's in the office next to you. And a man most likely is going to opine. They're going to give their opinion. So the whole point is, it's sometimes, it's, it's us. We need to speak up as women. We need to be quoted in you know, magazines and do podcasts and do these kinds of things, because I think it's really important. And they made a really good concept that when women speak out, they speak out differently about the same topic. So one of the topics was the um, rainforest burning. And a man might say, hey, this is terrible. All the toxins are going into the air and they're blowing over to the next country. And a woman's going to say, isn't this terrible? It's burning the forest and all these people who live off the forest are not going to have homes anymore. They're not opposing points of view." but what they are is giving a fuller picture. So one of the things I would encourage women is when you're asked to speak up, speak up. If you're in a room with all men or you know, senior management and you have a valid point, speak up, you know, but be prepared when you do. I think that's something we all can learn to do better.
0: Thank you so much, Michelle, for joining Graham and myself today. It's been a truly inspirational story. I love hearing about how you got into um, payroll and global payroll and where you are at today. So I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. This podcast is made possible by ADP Global Payroll, giving you the confidence and transparency to transform global payroll into an engine for growth. Begin your journey at adp.com forward slash worldwide
2: and connect with your local global expert.